All right, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 48. Uh, if you usually have my outlines, you'll know there's a couple of outlines in your pew for Genesis. Um, this one's a little short, so I went ahead and wrote the one for chapter 49 as well. Uh, if we don't get to it, we'll do it uh, two weeks from tonight. Uh, but we may begin it tonight. Um, there's only four men to pray, so we, we may go the full 30 minutes and see uh, where we end up. But in these two chapters, Genesis 48 and Genesis 49, we begin to take a look at the blessings uh, of Jacob, or Jacob's blessings, as you see the outlines titled. We'll look at the first 14 verses. This chapter in particular is dealing with Joseph's sons, uh, a little bit of Joseph at the end, but mainly Joseph's sons. Genesis 48, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass after these things, of course we know that in Scripture that means some time has passed since the conclusion of the previous verse or previous chapter, that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And Jacob said unto Joseph, God Almighty appeared unto me at Luz which Jacob renamed Bethel back in Genesis 28:19. You might want to mark that in your Bibles. Bethel's kind of an important place. It will eventually be very, very important to even what we see in the next chapter, but when we get to the New Testament where the Lord's born. Again, Genesis 28, verse 19, this is where Jacob renames Luz, Bethel. And it's in the land of Canaan. And blessed me, he says, and said unto me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee, and I will make of thee a multitude of people, and will give this land to thy seed after thee for an everlasting possession. And now thy two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. And thy issue, and simply put, what he's talking about here is thy further kindred or thy offspring or thy descendants. He says, and thy issue, which thou begettest after them, shall be thine and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. And as for me, when I came to Padan, which is the same as Padanaram, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan in the way, when yet there was but a little way to come unto Ephrath. And I buried her there in the way of Ephrath, uh, Ephrath, the same as Bethlehem. So we see that come full circle. And we'll talk about that a little more in the next outline as well. And Israel beheld Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? And Joseph said unto his father, These are my sons whom God hath given me in this place. And he said, Bring them, I pray thee, unto thee, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim for age, so that he could not see. And he brought them near unto him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said unto Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God hath showed me also thy seed. And Joseph brought them out from between his knees, and he bowed them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near unto him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, crossing his own arms to do so, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. I had originally... Um, thought about illustrating that. In my mind, there were going to be more people here, so I guess we're going to have to trust the Scripture uh, to, to mean what it says. But essentially, Joseph, what's being described here is Joseph's got a son on each hand, 
and he's facing his father. So his hands are reversed from his father's. But when his father goes to place the blessing on the boys, he he crosses his hands to do it. So just some semantics, because a lot of what we get in the beginning is Jacob kind of running through memories, which is very typical of a man near the end of his life to run through uh, the experiences that he's had. And he's running through it with a messenger first, and then he runs through it a little bit more with Joseph. Jacob spent the last 17 of his 147 years with Joseph in Egypt. So he had his favorite son the first 17 years of Joseph's life and then the last 17 years of his own life. Knowing that he was to die, the aged uh, patriarch called Joseph to his bed. Uh, and we see, uh, uh, well, he calls him to his bed uh, there in verse 31 and that he, that he might bless his two sons. So verse 31 is a reference to the same thing. There's also a place in the New Testament that we ended last lesson with that talked about him leaning upon his staff. And the word there is actually referencing his bedpost, the same thing that we see him doing here as he props himself up on his bed, but he leans on the bedpost or on the side of the bed to do everything he says in this chapter and again what we see in the next. The two boys were at least in their early 20s. We know this because Genesis 41.50 says, And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years the famine came. And we remember how long the famine was. Seven years good, seven years bad. And Asenath, the daughter of uh, Potiphar, priest of On, bare unto him. And then we see, based on that time, that Jacob's been in Egypt, which we just said was 17 years, from Genesis 47, 28. So even if it was just the seven bad years of the famine, plus these 17 years since Jacob's come in, uh, you got at least 24 years in which these boys have been around. Jacob claims them as his own, comparing them to his, uh, in status with his firstborns, firstborn boys, Reuben and Simeon, uh, in a sense, adopting them. And that's going to be pretty important to what we see in the rest of this outline. Knowing that Manasseh was the firstborn, Joseph put the boy at Jacob's right hand. So it would have been his own left to Jacob's right. With Ephraim on his own left. See, this is why I wanted to illustrate it, brother. Charlie's over here. Let's see how bad this gets. You understand they're facing one another. Okay, so we just read the scripture and we understand what he's doing. But he's, he's trying to get the oldest to be on his father's right because he's expecting the spiritual blessings to fall on the oldest, which is it's really bizarre that God's people would expect this because we've got countless generations in which it didn't happen that way. But it is the tradition of the land. It is the traditional way in which these types of blessings would come down. The, the, the two physical blessings or the two doses, like we saw when we were talking about the prodigal son and his older brother, he would have received a double inheritance because he was oldest. The same thing follows here. It displeased Joseph uh, that Jacob crossed his arms in this way. Uh, and, and we could jump out of this again and, and in our own flesh and say, well, Jacob is the usurper. He usurped his daddy. He usurped his daddy-in-law. Uh, should we be so surprised that he would usurp again here? But this situation, he's not usurping God's authority. He's actually following it, which is fascinating when we get into the next chapter and read all the blessings that Jacob issues out to his boys. There's things he couldn't possibly have known. There's no way to say the Spirit wasn't involved in the things that he was laying out because uh, a lot of his prophecies span 600 plus years uh, all the way down to David. So it displeased Joseph, but Jacob was guided by God for God was going to give the greater blessing to Ephraim. 
This is another example of the divine principle of setting aside the first to establish the second. We've mentioned this before, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. We saw this before with Seth and Cain, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and quite a few others, but I'll, I'll save some of those examples for later. Now, as we see, saw earlier there in Genesis with Esau and Jacob, the custom would have been that the oldest would receive a double portion of the inheritance. The oldest would typically be entrusted with spiritual responsibility or the spiritual blessing. That was what Jacob and Esau got in the, in the little thing over to begin with, was that it was supposed to be Esau's blessing according to tradition. But from what the Lord had already told Rachel or Rebecca long before they were even born, when they were in the womb, he said that Jacob would receive that blessing. Jacob starts with Joseph. He doesn't start with his oldest. He doesn't start with Reuben. So we're not talking about Manasseh and Ephraim anymore. He's starting with Joseph. Joseph is the oldest of his favorite wife. I know that sounds awful, but if you remember the situation with Laban, he fell in love with Rachel. That's who he wanted to marry. He was deceived by Laban and inherited her sister as a wife and then two handmaids, which is where all these boys came from to begin with. So technically, Joseph is the oldest of the wife in which he was in love with. Not the oldest by age, but the oldest in, in that situation. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1. And if you want to put a, throw a bookmarker into First Chronicles, there's a lot in the next outline that's going to go to First Chronicles. Uh, as you might expect, we're going to see a lot of Joshua 19 because a lot of the land that Jacob is uh, bequeathing to his sons here it won't actually happen until those tribes get past the 40 years of wandering into Joshua 19. So those two places we're going to wear out pretty, pretty good in the next couple of Wednesdays. But in 1 Chronicles 5, verse 1, we read, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. And then a parenthetical here, For he was the firstborn, but for as much as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given unto the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. And the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. And we'll talk about that in greater detail. It's refresher. We've seen it already, but we'll talk about that in greater detail in the next outline. Joseph was also the eldest of, Jake, of Rachel, which we've said already, uh, because of the deception of Laban years before. Jacob here takes up Ephraim and Manasseh as though they were his adopted sons. When he, when he issues the blessing on these two boys, it's as if they are his own children. And he says it, they are mine. Uh, as, as Reuben and Simeon are mine, I like to think as a dad, he's like, those two. These two are mine. And maybe he wants to work out a trade with Joseph. You take Reuben and Simeon. I'd like to have these two. I'd like to take fruitful and patience over the two misfits I've had for the last 40-some years. But as far as the division of the inheritance, especially the future division of the land of Canaan, when they would return to inhabit the land promised for them uh, for an inheritance, they are figuratively sons of Jacob uh, and therefore would be counted as two of Jacob's sons. So there's a lot of places in the Bible. We're going to reference a couple of them in the next outline where we get the list of the tribes and they're not always the same. And I'll do the best I can between this outline and the next one to explain why that might be without teaching 66 books of the Bible all in one night. Notice how Jacob and Joseph glorify God for this moment. They, they literally in the text glorify, we see Jacob glorify God 
because he never thought he'd see Joseph again. And now he sees Joseph and Joseph's seed. We see Joseph glorify God because he's, he's at his father's bedside, uh, seeing the end of his father's life, and he never thought he'd see his father again. Matthew Henry wrote, The two good men own, own God and their comforts. Joseph says, They are my sons whom God has given me. Jacob says, God has showed me thy seed. Comforts are doubly sweet to us when we see them coming from God's hand. He not only prevents our fears, but exceeds our hopes. And boy, you can't read the story of Joseph without seeing that he uh, exceeded greatly the hopes of Jacob's children. We read just verses 15 and 16 as we continue through here. Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16. And we read, And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me. This is the Hebrew word reah. It means shepherded me. And it's the first time we've seen the connection between shepherding and God in Scripture. Keep that in mind. He says, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me or shepherded me all my life long unto this day, the angel which redeemed uh, me from all evil. This word is the Hebrew word goel, and it is used for the first time in the Bible here as well. Very important what we're about to, to see here, and I gave it away to Charlie already. He says, bless the lads and let my name be named on them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. You all going to see it a lot when we get to Exodus. because Some of those notes are a little bit older and I was a little bit younger. But these are the moments in Scripture where I think it's okay for us as men, no matter how long we've been reading this precious book, to be blown away. Just literally knocked off our feet with what Scripture reveals. Already we've seen God's guidance of this blessing as he crosses Jacob's arms and gives the blessing to the exact right target. <clears throat> and, and as he's speaking even, uh, and we'll see it again in verse 19 as we keep going through this chapter. But when we read carefully the words Jacob used, we see that he even speaks as though there was some level of understanding of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Which we've, if you've gone back and listened to these old sermons, if you're my family and you've been with me since we started in Genesis 1, there's never been a teaching directly to these men on the Trinity at all. And yet the words he uses, the phrases he uses, literally depicts the Trinity here. Listen, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk. This would be God the Father. He's the one that conversed with Abraham. He's the one who said Abraham is, uh, is one of my prophets, one of my chosen, in a dream revealed to a, a neighboring king. Then he says, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, or in other words, the one who daily led me and provided my needs. This speaks of God, the Holy Spirit's work. It is exactly how he's described in the New Testament. It's exactly how we would teach him from this pulpit. And then we read, literally, with a capital T and a capital A, the angel which redeemed me from all evil. The first use of the word redeemed, and it's referencing the Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't the only time Jacob's going to do it in these two chapters, but beloved, we, we can be a little stunned, we can be a little surprised here that Jacob would have uh, the ability to even speak these things. 
just a knowledge that is not earthly whatsoever. We think of, of, of when Christ is having the conversation with his disciples and they, and they start talking about who the world says he is. And he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. And what does Jesus say? Praise the Lord. Praise the God in heaven who revealed that unto you. It's the same God who revealed this unto Jacob here. The angel which redeemed me from all evil that corresponds to the saving work of the Son of God already present a few times in Genesis before the conversing with Abraham over delivering just Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah's judgment just as one example. It's amazing. I got... I know you probably expect, well, pastor is supposed to be smart enough that he knows all these things. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't. And these types of things come up and it just stuns me a little bit. Uh, and boy, if we get a little time to get into this next outline, you're going to see some more. Look at verses 17 through 22 here <clears throat> of Genesis 48. So this does take us to the end of the chapter. We read, And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he held up his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head unto Manasseh. And Joseph said unto his father, Not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Put thy right hand upon his head. Well, stop for just a minute. In Joseph's mind, he, he knows like we do from the scripture here. Jacob's at the end of his life. His eyesight is dim, the scripture says. Maybe he, he put the hands on the wrong people. Maybe he didn't see that Joseph had set this up for him so that it was more convenient for him. So from Joseph's perspective, he doesn't want there to be an heir in the, this blessing that's being poured out. But listen to what Jacob says. His father refused and said, I know it, my son, I know it. He also says, or, or he also shall become a people. He's speaking of both sons here. And he also shall be great, but truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, in thee, shall Israel, in thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and Manasseh. And he set up Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said unto Joseph, Behold, I die, but God shall be with you and bring you again into the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my, with my bow. Uh, this is going to blow you away too. I don't know if I've said it here yet, but I remember telling uh, the Bereans in Mississippi that there's times in my outlines where I look for a, a wow my wife moment, and this is going to be it. So if y'all want to join me on this one, it's going to blow her away because she's been hearing me talk about the Shechemite massacre for two years. And guess what parcel of land it is that Jacob is referencing? Yep. Very likely that exact strip of land that his children... Uh, specifically the two boys he just tried to pawn off on Joseph, Reuben, and Simeon, where they led the Shechemite massacre because of the defiling of Dinah. It's that strip of land that they killed all the men. Jacob got that land not, not willingly. You're going to see here, not favorably. It wasn't really his choice. It wasn't what he wanted. But there's a couple of things that we see here, and, I, and I'll get into that point in just a minute. God's choices, to use a man's term, of course, are spiritual. They're not chronological. They're not by merit. They're not necessarily going to always make sense. Uh, some of the things that we go through is because we have to go through it for us to learn that lesson. Other things that, uh, such as blessing the younger before the older, it's some typology that has to be perfect all the way through, and God knows it. Uh, 
Uh, also, God is not bound by time, waiting with his chin resting upon his arms, just wondering how it's all going to work out. He already knows how it's all going to work out. One writer said, Grace is sovereign and by no means follows, but rather opposes the course of nature. I like that. Grace is sovereign and by no means follows, but rather opposes the course of nature. Joseph was displeased with the youngest receiving his birthright. However, our text provides us with confirmation that Jacob was not just too old to know better. He says, I know it, my son. I know it. I wonder if Jacob, as a man at this point, is thinking, we're going to see this all over again. This has already happened 147 years ago. Uh, well, he wasn't born into that deceit, but uh, pretty young. A hundred and some years ago, and now we're going to see it all over again. But Jacob confirms that he knows what's happening. He may not know what he's doing, but he knows this is God's choice. He knows this is God's will. Have you ever been in a circumstance where you know what the will of God is, but it, boy, it sure doesn't make a lot of sense. If you had to explain it to somebody, they're probably not going to believe it. And you're not going to have enough tangible evidence for a man to believe it. That's where faith kicks in. That's where faith should always be. Joseph here is deeded a double portion of a strip of land that he himself won for their people from the Amorites, that Jacob won for his people from the Amorites, not because Jacob lifted a sword. And there's a lot of different commentators that try to figure out what strip of land this is, but New Testament makes it pretty clear. The only other possible mention of this strip of land is in John chapter 4, verse 5 a place in Scripture we're familiar with because in that area, Jesus says, I must needs go. Um, so when we think about the, the massacre of the Shechemites, we can see the connection it, that had to happen. That had to happen for all of this to come to place. John 4, 5 says, Then cometh he to a city, Jesus, the city of Samaria, which is called Sikar, or Shechem of all places, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Following this line of thought, the land taken brutally by his older sons during the massacre or the revenge over Dinah being defiled back in Genesis 34, my wife is writing furiously, was nonetheless in Jacob's ownership. All the way through, he didn't sell his land when he left Canaan. So everything he owned, he still owned. That's what we see in the next chapter when he starts to deed out what's still being argued over even today as far as who the land belongs to. Jacob never sold it. It was God's land that he gave unto Jacob. And this strip of land, though it wasn't necessarily the way we might think God would want for Jacob to come into ownership of it, Jacob owns it. He'd be passing that on, not to the sons who brutally took it in their father's name, but to Joseph. Let's get into this next outline. I've been chomping at the bit to get into Genesis 49. Genesis chapter 49, the last message of Jacob. And we're going to only look at a few verses at a time, so this would be pretty easy for us to find a stopping point when we're ready. But Genesis 49, verses 1 through 2, is, there's no end that came to pass. So this is the very next moment. The chapter break here is really inconvenient. We see, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. 
So when he sent the call out for Joseph to come, the messengers likely also got a similar beckoning to go get the other sons. So they're now all in the room. Now there's some things to, to, to point out about Genesis, and because I started this study not here, I don't know that I've actually made this reference, so we're just going to backtrack just a little bit here. Throughout the entire book of Genesis, we have seen nine sets of chroniclers from Genesis 1 all the way through Genesis 50 as far as who recorded these events. I could try to sell you on why that's a fact, but does anybody think Moses is alive here and nobody told us? So he had to get those stories from somewhere. He had to get all of this from somewhere. Uh, tradition passed down from one man to another. So through the entire, though the entire book was put together under Moses' supervision for the nation of Israel at a later date, they all, the, the count that we have is about nine different chroniclers, uh, technically eight because Adam chronicled two, but even Adam had to be told about the first two chapters of the Bible. He wasn't in the first few days of it after all. Each time a new writer were to take up his portion, the previous writer's work would conclude with, these are the generations of, and then whatever comes next tells us who that chronicler is. So you can put it to the test tonight. I'll give you a couple of verses to get you started here. But the first portion concludes in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And I should also point out that every time this phrase is used, it's about midway through a verse. So if you're a man where the chapter breaks happen and where the verse breaks happen, that's where we got to stop. You're going to hate this because every single time that we're told that these are the generations of, it's in the middle of a verse and it starts right into the next section. In Genesis 2.4, Adam bookmark, bookmarks the end of those writings of the, of the creations, uh, at least the beginning portion of it, by saying these are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. That is the first section of this book. And he's essentially telling you I had to get that from somewhere else. I wasn't there. Adam was most assuredly the one who passed those writings down because he was the only man that existed after that. But he elected to separate those writings as such. The second break is Genesis 5.1, where Adam concludes his writings. The remaining seven writers are Noah, then the sons of Noah, then Shem in particular, then Terah, then Isaac, then Jacob. And this final section, which is drawing to a close right now, is being compiled by the sons of Jacob, who he addresses here in these first two verses. This is why I wanted to bring this up. It's very important because as we've mentioned a few times in the last 10 chapters, there's some of these stories like the whole chapter with Judah. None of the other brethren knew about any of those things. Maybe they heard about it when he came back, but none of them knew about Joseph in Egypt until recently in our study. So it had to take all of the boys, all of the sons, to compile the notes that we've been reading for uh, a multitude of chapters up to this point. And it is Jacob putting the final nail in it. They're the sons of Jacob after all. And he's giving us these last two chapters. And then chapter 50 is where we'll close. So all of these messages, of course, are on Podbean if you want to go chase them down. But if you're studying through all of these things, when you see the phrase, and these are the generations of, understand this is a writer break. So if things seem to shift a little bit, and, and they do, uh, especially there in Genesis 5.1 when Adam's writing stopped, the next writer that takes over, Noah, writes differently. Uh, now Moses does an amazing job of streaming them all together, but we need to understand and be realistic uh, when we're telling people that uh, folks live 400 years, we got to at least make it somewhat believable and making sure they do. Somebody wrote these things down. Somebody chronicled uh, when these events took place. In these first two verses, we find the sons of, of Israel, or Jacob, being called together for his final words to them. 
And the discourse that follows is not an ordinary conversation. It's Jacob speaking in the Spirit, so it's written poetically. It's loaded with imagery. It also bears a lot of symbols and a lot of prophecy. Uh, he's, as I said, he's speaking as he's led by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to, in, in this Wednesday and two weeks from now when we conclude this outline, I'll do the absolute best I can to point to what we know he was talking about, but there's still some things we're, we haven't seen yet, haven't made the connection up. So let's look first at verses 3 and 4, and this may be as far as we get tonight. Genesis 49, verses 3 and 4, Jacob says, Reuben, thou art my firstborn. I should also point out, he's, he's not super sweet and gentle in some of the things he says in this chapter. Thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed. Then defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. I'm a lot less patient than Jacob. My kids do something. I typically address it before my deathbed. But when that event happened, he didn't say a lot about it. And I think I taught it here. So you might remember in the text there, uh, where I'm going to read it in a minute in Genesis 35. He doesn't really do anything to Reuben. And maybe for the last 30 years, he thought, man, dad was really cool about that whole thing with Bill Hop. And then on his deathbed, it comes out. Genesis 35, 22, And it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land, that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard it. In fact, that's all you hear about it, is that Israel knew, Jacob heard about it. During the affair with Bilhah, we pointed to this moment in which it's proven that his father knew about it, had not forgotten about it, and more importantly, neither had God. Because remember, he's speaking in the Spirit here. So this isn't Jacob trying to get even with his sons. This is Jacob with the spiritual blessing that was endowed upon him from his father Isaac. He is speaking, I don't say as God, but God is speaking through him, essentially, in this entire chapter. What does a moment of pleasure truly cost a man or a woman? From his father's mouth, Reuben heard, Thou shalt not excel. If Reuben were here tonight, and you could ask him a few minutes, a few hours, a, a, a small fling, what's the harm? And he could tell you what that felt like when his father said, speaking in the spirit, thou shalt not excel. Thou art unstable as water. Not because Joseph was favored, mind you. You know, when they were younger, that was always the reason. Well, Jacob loves Joseph. Joseph is the favorite one. That's not an excuse here. What Jacob is saying to Reuben is all Reuben. And it's not because Judah had seemingly repented, but because of his own uh, because of his own life, because of his own choices, because of his own inability to follow, he'd proven to be weak and unstable. In this day and age, there would be an outrage. Every life matters. Everyone has a voice, they would say. Well, it's true. Reuben had a life and a voice, and it's warning us even now. Be steadfast, beloved. Tend to your father's house. Do the will of God. See to the things you were called to, beloved, and do not forsake them. A moment of defilement led to a lifetime of disappointment. 
In the history of Israel, the tribe of Reuben never furnished a leader of any kind for the nation as a whole. Never. So we see immediately the scope of what is happening here is Jacob is not damning his children to a life of whatever is coming out of his mouth. He's speaking of the tribes. The tribes that we even see all the way in Revelation, the tribes of Israel. This is what Jacob is telling them. Your entire tribe, your entire progeny, your entire lineage has been impacted. Not one leader came from the house or the tribe of Reuben. In their later journeys to the promised land, the Reubenites were the first tribe to ask for a place to settle, not waiting to cross the Jordan with the others in Numbers 32. They, t- they participated in the erection of an unauthorized place of worship in Joshua 22, verses 10-34. And during the later wars with the Canaanites in the days of Deborah and Barak, the tribe of Reuben failed to answer the call to arms in Judges 5, verses 15 and 16. Jacob's prophecy concerning Reuben continued to be fulfilled. And if you need a copy of these outlines, I'd be happy to print them because there's, there's a lot here. Uh, let's go a little further. Uh, look at verse 5, 6, and 7. Jacob continues, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly. Mine, mine honor, be not thou united, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here we see the next two oldest in the family. And, and it's not going to go chronologically the whole time, but so far it is. As Reuben had manifested weakness and lust, these two had manifested anger and cruelty. These are the two that led the slaughter of the Shechemites in Genesis chapter 34. Here Jacob makes it clear that it was not his desire for them to do these awful things. Now remember when Dinah was defiled, Jacob was at, he went to the fields. He didn't say a lot to the brethren. He didn't say a lot to his daughter. He didn't say anything to the Shechemites. He went to the fields. I didn't then and I won't now try to make any excuse for him as a father of what he did there. We got a lot of examples in, in the 30s chapters of Jacob not mentioning God by name and not doing much to lead his home toward God. I'm sure he was haunted by that. But even here, he makes it clear, speaking in the spirit, that he did not urge his boys to do that, and he was not in support of what his boys did to the Shechemites. Simeon's descendants were later absorbed into the tribe of Judah. Joshua 19, that I mentioned that we'd see a lot of, says in the first verse, And the second lot came forth to Simeon, even for the tribe of the children of Simeon, according to their families and their inheritance, was within the inheritance of the children of Judah. I apologize, I meant to work out how many years passed between Jacob speaking in Genesis 49 and Joshua 19 when they finally get there. Uh, so when we get to Joshua 19 and our teaching, Lord willing, we'll, if, he doesn't, if he tarries, we're going to go there. Uh, we'll talk about how long it's been when we get there. And you'll be expected to remember all these things, so just keep that in mind. Others of his sons, other of Simeon's sons, would be captured and dwelled in some of the lands of the Edomites and the Amalekites outside of Canaan, according to 1 Chronicles chapter 4, verses 39-43. In the days of the divided kingdom, many of the Simeonites left Israel to join Judah in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 9. 
Simeon's numerical decline is seen when we compare Numbers chapter 1, verse 23. And remember, Numbers is a book of census. It is a book of numbers. Their numbering at the beginning in Numbers 123 was 59,300. And their numbering in Numbers 26, verse 14, is 22,200, less than half. A little is heard of them after the days of King Asa. Levi, and this will be the last one we look at tonight, Levi became the priestly tribe. What grace. Having no inheritance of their own. We read in Joshua chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, Then came near the heads of the fathers of the Levites unto Eleazar the priests, and unto Joshua the son of Nun, and unto the heads of the fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And they spake unto them at Shiloh. Uh-huh. That's the first time we see the city of Shiloh. We'll get to that next uh, in two weeks. This is, this is just These two chapters of Genesis are just amazing. Uh, and this is in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded by the hand of Moses to give us cities to dwell in, with suburbs thereof for our cattle. And the children of Israel gave unto the Levites out of their inheritance, as commanded of the Lord, these cities and their suburbs. So they are scattered or divided throughout all the other tribes' land, just as Jacob prophesies here. This is hundreds of years from now. I, I want to make that. And, that, and Joshua's not following orders necessarily that Jacob had issued to, to his sons. This is exactly what God knew was going to happen. And Jacob is telling his sons that it was going to happen. You can argue about free will later. How did it happen if they knew it was going to happen? Great question. Great question. But isn't it interesting to see that all of these things that came to pass, if you recall, uh, it was God that chose the Levites to be the priesthood. It wasn't somebody else saying this is how it has to be. And we'll, in this outline, we'll talk about Moses and Aaron and who they all descend from because all of that is very interesting too because it also follows exactly what Jacob prophesied. They didn't, they're not Reubenites. As you heard, they're unstable as water. It, they're not Levites because uh, of this and that. And they're not... Uh, Simeonites and so on and so on. It's just amazing how all of these things lay out all the way down to Saul of Tarsus. We see every single one of them in their lineage, uh, being a Benjamite, I believe. We see exactly what Jacob said here playing out through all time. And beloved, it hasn't stopped. So keep these things in mind. I know we got a two-week break with us traveling next week, but uh, uh, what an amazing couple of chapters. If you do need these outlines, if you just like to have them, to have all these reference points in the same spot. I'll gladly give them to you. Uh, also let you